the intersection of journalism and virtual reality. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Dr. Nani De La Pena, founder of the Emblematic Group and Reach.Love. Welcome, Nani. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I love uh, being called doctor too, even though it's, it makes me laugh. Just don't <laughs> call me doctor on an airplane, even though I deserved it. I worked so hard for that PhD. Well, you've earned it. So yeah, there you go. Um, so reach.love, what does reach.love do? And why did you start the company? So reach.love is an offshoot of my studio company, Emblematic Group, where we've made a lot of really groundbreaking content. Um, stuff that's really pushed the needle forward in terms of um, how do you put people on scene for journalism stories to um, incredible. We just did a major launch for Milan Fashion Week doing virtual production for a fashion show. So we had a really um, a wide range of skills and talents and technology breaking content. But what I found was that there are a lot of barriers for um, underrepresented folks to be able to come into this medium. Um, the cost of hiring engineers, the learning curve is incredibly steep. Um, you know, I had to teach myself to code. I'm often the only woman. Um, and all these things together really inspired me to try to make a tool that would just be button based, that would let anybody start to make volumetric content from anywhere. Um, if you think of the way like Squarespace lets anybody make a website or Canva lets people make their own marketing tools. Uh, Reach is a no-code platform that lets anybody come into this medium and start creating uh, volumetric VR and AR content. I love it. And it's a great time for it. I explain, if you will, the intersection of journalism and virtual reality. What are the challenges to getting both of those pieces right? So, you know, journalism, um, it has a long track record of um, doing amazing, amazing uh, exploration of our world, of trying to give people the view from the ground, which is what Martha Gellhorn called it, uh, World War II reporter. Um, and also introspection, uh, recognizing, for example, that you can't just have the cameras rolling like we did in Vietnam and have the footage come into the six o'clock uh, living room, right? You know, where people are having their dinner when the scenes were really brutal, right? Had to think about what do we show people and how do we show it? And what are the best practices to today where newsrooms are really uh, confronting uh, the fact that they weren't necessarily reporting on the communities in which they were based, right? They had a very uh, narrow window. So I think journalism is super cool because not only are we trying to tell the stories of the world around us, but journalists have also um, been very thoughtful about their profession and what they do. And they've tried to, to think it through as they've gone along. The other thing about journalists that people don't realize is they've often been innovators. They've been the ones to try to grab new technology and uh, uh, and use it for their purposes. For example, the Nagra, which was the first portable audio recording device that went along with footage, um, was uh, basically because of documentary filmmakers trying to get out into the street and not be uh, tied down by equipment. So um, these are the kind of things that that all lead, you know, led me to think about journalism. I was a correspondent for Newsweek. I made a bunch of doc films. And I knew that my goal, I mean, I have a, you know, this cover story with Newsweek, you know, hour by hour crack, where I'm trying to put people on scene that, you know, the effects that crack was having on America. Um, and so the goal uh, certainly for my journalism was to um, have 
let people have a deeper understanding of a story by being there, right? In the, to the best of my capacity as a writer. But now what I'm trying to do is let people be there in our, with their whole bodies, not just with watching something, not with just reading something, not with just listening to something, but to be there in embodied form. And that's a super interesting challenge. Tell us the story about the diabetic and the food line and the reactions that you got from viewers at Sundance. So, um, Hunger in LA wasn't my first attempt. It was the, actually the very first virtual reality piece ever shown at Sundance. And it was a, it was a really big endeavor uh, on my part. And boy, did I have to learn how to code and beg and borrow favors. And it was crazy, but basically, um, I wanted to put people on scene in a food bank line, which essentially was invisible to most Americans and they were running out of food and um, families were showing up. Um, and, you know, I knew that, that these people were going to go home when the food ran out hungry. And so I felt like this is a really important issue and we needed to put a more um, effective, um, uh, we need to do, a, you know, put a more effective, um, focus on it. So with an intern, a woman named Michaela Kopsamark, um, we um, uh, started recording audio at food banks. And one day she came back to my office just in tears. And she played me the audio recording of a man with diabetes who didn't get food in time. And he was in this long line and he dropped into a diabetic coma. I mean, at this point, we didn't even have GoPro cameras. And I listened to that audio and said, I'm putting people on scene here, right? So we created this, this street scene where you are present when this whole scene unfolds. Um, the man uh, drops into a coma, the paramedics come and the cast, somebody tries to steal food and it's a pretty wild scene. And when we took it to Sundance, we just didn't know how people were gonna react. Um, you know, first off we had these bespoke goggles. Um, you know, I think it's pretty legendary now that uh, Palmer Lucky was a kid who helped make those goggles and was crashed in my hotel room and he was the intern driving the truck around. Um, uh, and uh, who then, you know, nine months later went on to start Oculus Rift, right? That Facebook bot. But we have these crazy duct tape, bespoke pair of goggles, um, all this equipment, um, you know, things would break and we'd have to redo the wires. It was a really nutty, nutty, um, uh, premiere. Uh, but that night, the very first night, people were coming out of it crying. We ended up with wait lines that were like sometimes stretched four or five hours. People begged us not to close. Uh, you know, we would, we were staying open way extra hours than we're supposed to. Um, and, um, we came out of it just kind of going, Oh my God, you know, what, what did we just do to people? People were crying, weeping, and deeply moved by being on scene. And I think that was, that was really the start where people understood that immersive journalism could be a very effective form of, um, of telling new stories. Does an ethical VR simulation require limitations on how the viewer can interact with a VR news story? The good news is, that journalism has spent a long time trying to think about ethics and, be and best practices. And a lot of these can be applied here. Um, things like you have to let people know the kind of experience they're gonna have, what's the content, you know, um, so that they can decide whether this is something that they um, wanna watch or, or be involved with. And the other thing I'm really careful about 
um, what I portray. For example, uh, I did a piece on domestic violence. Um, it was the story of two sisters who try unsuccessfully to rescue a third sister from a fatal attack by an ex-boyfriend. And um, the two sisters had both, their phones were both live and they'd both called 911 and all the audio was recorded through the death. And um, I make the choice, even though we had lots of material to do otherwise, you're not in the room when she's killed. Um, and those are the kind of things I think are ethically important. You have to make those decisions. You're out with the sisters and their grief is very apparent. Um, and the sisters, you know, became activists and they want this story told. Um, and I think that altogether, um, those are the kind of considerations. Whose story is it? How are they participating? How do you tell the story in a way that gets your message across without necessarily being um, unduly graphic? Um, and those are sort of the kind of really important um, elements, uh, I think, when you're reporting on almost any story, right? But, but even more so when you're giving people an embodied experience of being on scene. So what type of distribution challenges do you face? And will consumers all need costly headsets? So um, fortunately, the cost of the headsets are coming down really fast. And, um, you know, the, the Quest, the Oculus Quest is 300 bucks and you don't need a computer. The other thing is that um, I've seen some new glasses being leaked and they're really light and they're really small. Um, and um, I think it's moving much more quickly than even I expected. Um, so this issue, you know, right now when you're, when you're, you know, your life is dominated by your phone and looking like this and your head's down and you're like this, well, it's all gonna reside in your glasses. And you're gonna be able to have conversations with people like normal like this. And the same way my glasses tend to become sunglasses, they'll tend to become VR glasses. They'll stay light for augmented reality. And if you haven't tried any bone conduction audio glasses like the Bose frames, go check them out. I'm not wearing mine right now. Aha, I have them right here. Um, but these are, are actually bone conduction audio and it allows for me to speak on them, listen on them, um, uh, you know, take my calls, my music. So, and then again, these got all my prescription lenses there and also my sunglasses. So those are the kind of glasses that are coming and I think they're coming faster than you think. Speaking of moving quickly, what's on the near-term horizon for VR journalism? What signals should investors and entrepreneurs watch for to, to understand the evolution and maturity of the use case? So I think, um, you know, one of the cool things is um, that the new iPhone 12 has a LiDAR capabilities of, uh, it's, it's got, you know, lenses for LiDAR capture, which means that you're going to stop capturing your world with flat photos. You're going to capture it with volume like it really is. It's got dimension. Just in the real world, everything around you have dimension. Well, that's what the new phones are going to let you do. And, and that's moving very quickly. But now what? What do you do with those pictures? How do you share volumetric pictures? Well, that's why we started Reach.Love. It lets anybody kind of come in with a button-based system and just start um, making volumetric content, um, telling stories volumetrically and not flat. Um, my whole, you know, deal was with, re with you know, hunger. I had to learn how to code. And I mean, the barriers to entry right now for making VR are really high. And that's why I started to reach this like no code button-based system that um, you'll be able to make and share um, content with dimension. I mean, our world isn't flat. So why should our media be? 
Dr. Nani De La Pena, founder of the Emblematic Group and Reach.Love. Thanks so much for joining us, Nani. If somebody wants to connect with you, maybe they want to find out more about Reach.Love. How can they do that? So uh, if you come to info at reach.love, you can either email us, but you can also just go to the websites, reach.love and emblematicgroup.com, and you can learn all about us. Thank you so much for your time, Nani. Thank you. And find more of my interviews right here on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and or at tanyahall.net. Thanks for watching. Thank you.